Hey, this is Melissa Green, and you are listening to Grace Point Church's podcast. Our vision statement at Grace Point is loving God, loving self, and loving others. If you want to find out more, visit gracepoint.net. Well, we had a, a great week down in Haiti this week, and I'll just testify a little bit this morning, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. There are times that preachers, if they have enough sense, they realize that testimonies are more in line in their life than messages. We probably all would do better with a few more messages or testimonies and a few less messages. But what I experienced this week, um, in no way would I try to impose it on you, but it was such a rich experience that I don't even have any sense of what I would say if I were trying to put together a sermon this week. Some things you experience that are so holy, Mark, you just put your hand over your mouth and say, enough already. But I'll, I'll encourage you a bit, just after this good week from being down in Haiti and our, our Timothy's gift team um, did such a remarkable work. Eight new prisons they were a part of this week. And I, I don't know if you know how big that is, but literally um, several thousand people came and were ministered to. Uh, they have such dispensation down there in the Florida Department of Corrections. It's just amazing that by the time we get to even these new places, hundreds of men come and just pack the place out. Um, no tepid response for sure. And when I talked to Ron this morning, first I've talked to him and Melissa, they said it was just beyond words. They couldn't even explain how profound that it was. It, it's important to me that we're in a a celebration and a study of the Christian church right now. A couple of weeks ago, it was the day of Pentecost, and within the church calendar, it's that time of the year when we especially celebrate this idea of this entity called the church. The church, um, the community of faith, the community of faith, believers who follow Christ and live together. Uh, scripture calls this the body of Christ. And I've just been thinking a lot about the body of Christ. Uh, we've got Phyllis Tickle coming, not next Sunday, but the next Sunday. She's a great a student of the church, a church historian. She's a real believer. I've got you guys reading her books right now. You've been reading, a lot of you have been reading The Great Emergence. Um, she's talking about what she senses uh, that God is doing in the earth right now, especially through the Christian church uh, in the last few decades, maybe the last century. Uh, she's a brilliant woman, and maybe I'll show a clip from Phyllis, and, and I intended to in the first service, and the testimony just kept going and got in the way, but Phyllis is coming, and she's going to talk to us about what she feels like is happening in the earth spiritually. Well, the way that I would speak to that this morning is this. After going to Haiti this past week, I, I was reminded was reminded of Paul's words when Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, the churches of Galatia, and said, O foolish Galatians, who has so quickly removed you from the simplicity that's in Christ? The simplicity that's in Christ. How quickly you have overcomplicated this thing called following Jesus. Thinking about the Christian church, the particular branch of the Christian church that I'm a part of, the Protestant church, 
500 years ago, there was a major move of God's Spirit that we call the Great Reformation that was not only effective in building the Protestant church, but it was very effective in reforming the church that was and still is, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. But I was thinking about our movement. Phyllis Tickle says, and um, maybe I'll show the, the clip now. You guys get the clip ready for me. Phyllis Tickle says, in every major movement, which she says they happen about every 500 years, and I don't think you can prove that, but by her reading of history, every 500 years these major movements happen. Um, Phyllis says that there are several questions that come especially to the fore at those times, pressing questions that we ask ourselves as a church in the macro and in the micro. The first question is the question, a la Francis Schaeffer's book back 50 years ago, how now shall we live? A move, a true move, what we called in the old Pentecostal world a move of God. And I don't want to dress it up with so much religious language that you miss the point. The point is that we believe that God is intentional and involved in the earth and that God's not arbitrarily just creating planets and people and letting them play out, but God with great intention is involved in this earth. And some of you really believe that and you see God in everyday life and you feel like God's interacting with you. Uh, some people are dubious to that, but I'm one who believes that this whole thing is not an accident. I believe that it was done with the intention of God at the behest of God, and I believe, Andreas, God's still deeply involved with this thing and has a mind about where he wants it to go. And periodically, these moves happen. It's like the Spirit of the Lord that brooded upon the waters and the universe gets created. God comes down in the form of a baby and the world gets changed. A fellow nails 95 theses on the door of a church and the church is renovated, renewed, and restored. Phyllis believes, and a lot of people believe, and it could be the narcissism of every generation to believe that we're at a special time. That's obviously possible. But I think there is a good indication per church history that yeah, twice a millennium, and maybe that has as much to do with sociology and anthropology as it does theology, but for whatever reason, the interaction between God and man gets especially stirred. And in those moments, we ask questions. The major question is, how now shall we live? How do we live in a time like this? What's God want from us at a time like this? How do we respond to the issues of the day, human brokenness, human vicissitude, human reality, times sufficiently change to such an extent that we, we don't know how to appropriate what has worked and make it work presently. The, the ball field, the landscape so dramatically changes that it feels like what did work is almost anachronistic and irrelevant now. But we still believe that this is God's world and that God's deeply involved. And so what are we supposed to do, God? What are we supposed to do? In a world with flying things and televisions and automobiles, in a world that is so dramatically different than the world even 100 years ago, exponentially different, the cyber age. The second question that is subsequent to that how now shall we live is followed by where then is our authority? A baby is born 
and the Mosaic law that had been the standard for 1400 years, that baby now so interrupts that process that Mike, the religious leaders hated him because they said that he was abrogating, not just abrogating and intervening, he, he was defying the law of Moses. And he tried to explain to them that he wasn't there to defy the law of Moses. He was there to fulfill what had always been the intent in the heart of God. And now that intent would come through a more refined medium, not tablets of stone, but fleshly tables of heart. A major transformation. But what was our authority? Law of Moses? And Jesus said, by the time I get through, there will be an authority. And Paul reflected back and he said, when you restore broken people, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. So there's still a law, but it's a new law. It's a law of love. And the church goes through these major moments. And the church had reached a peak of... The church had come to a boiling point uh, in terms of corruption in the 14th, 15th, 16th century. Uh, between the magisterium some really bad pontiffs, some really excessive control. We were in bad shape as a church. And that's not Protestants reflecting back on Catholics. Catholics, my Catholic friends reflect back on that point in history and say that was a sad era. And once the Protestants completely pulled out or were kicked out, our Catholic brothers and sisters didn't go back to that corruption. They went back to private places and said, we've got some things to work on. And the Catholic Church has been the better since the Protestant Reformation. But in every era, the question gets asked, what is our authority? And when we as Protestants moved out, Phyllis points this out, when we moved out of a Catholic Church where a rule of faith and apostolic memory and apostolic tradition had held such sway a belief that God meted out that rule of faith, that apostolic tradition through an apostolic succession, a carrying on of apostolic doctrine that went generation to generation all the way back through the hands of bishops to the apostles that sat at the feet of Jesus. Obviously, a tradition and a rule of faith that preceded even the canon of Scripture by 300 years. When the church, the Protestant church, the protesters looked at the face of the church's corruption, the corruption was not so much in the pew as it was in the pulpit. And finding no pontiffs to trust and no magisterium to vest their trust in, Luther, not grabbing for straws, but Luther seeking wisdom, Luther made a statement, sola scriptura, scriptura sola, only scripture and scripture only. We will find our authority only in Scripture. To which my Catholic friends now respond, absolutely. Any papal authority is not a contradiction. Any apostolic rule is not a contradiction to Scripture. How could it be? It's the very filter by which we came to Scripture. When we came to the canonization process in the third, the fourth, and the fifth century, the only way these 27 books made it into the canon was because they verified and corroborated and had to a great degree taught us what we believe was apostolic tradition. So the church would say the, the issue really is an authority, but in the beginning there was an undue authority vested in preachers like me, bishops, archbishops, and cardinals. And Luther said, enough corruption. Authority is in Scripture alone. 
but we didn't count on the next question that was going to come. The next question was a huge question that perhaps we didn't do well predicting, but we certainly know a lot about it now. And that is, if authority is in Scripture, then who then will be the arbiter and the interpreter of that Scripture? Somebody said, well, we don't need an arbiter interpreter of Scripture. We're all going to read the Scripture, and we're all going to agree, right? It's an easy book, right? We read it, and millions of us, Mark, just say, man, wish we'd have had that before. We could have done away with all these disagreements and arguments if we just had the book. We got the book, and now all of a sudden, the question was, who's going to be the interpreter? Who's going to be the arbiter? You got the video ready to go, Clint. This is a three-minute clip from Phyllis. She is a vibrant 80-year-old gal. She'll be here in two weeks. But listen to what Phyllis says about this. I think it's extremely important that you understand that, the, that you claim Christianity, but it's got a history uh, 2,000 years long, and, and there are patterns in there. And I don't care how free you are, you're not going to escape part of the patterns. What Luther had, of course, come into was 500 years of Roman or, or Catholic, whatever you call it, uh, Christianity, in which the Pope and the Curia and the Magisterium around him had been the source of authority. Uh, and they obviously had become corrupt, and there was no, no question the thing had to go away. So uh, it wasn't like Luther was a rocket scientist, it was just that obvious. So the minute he says, no more Pope, no more Magisterium, no more Curia, then there's this great silence. So we're now, where are the rules? You know, panic. Uh, you know, so what are we going to do? Uh, and he, he looks around as in conjunction with the other people. Obviously, it's wrong to blame Luther, but there was a whole coterie of them. Uh, but he looks around and he says, all right, then only the scripture. It's the holy writ. Sola Scriptura Scriptura Sola is Latin for only the scripture and the scripture only. What had been corrupted by the church had been the scriptures in many ways. There, there had been misinterpretation of it. There had been uh, lifting out sections to prove things that the papacy wanted proved. There had been absolute corruption of it, just misquoting deliberately. So, but, so he says, now we've got the book. And the book is going to be our pastor. It's going to be our authority. It's going to be our director, our teacher, the whole nine yards. Now, that's a lot to ask of a book. Okay, but this is a divine book. This is, this is the inspired book. Sola Scriptura held for about 350 years, uh, simply because, first of all, we had to educate people so they could learn to read the thing, because when Martin Luther came along, nobody, very few people could read. So it took us 120 years to teach everybody to read. After we taught everybody to read, then we found out that people read things that come to vastly different conclusions about the same thing. Worldwide, there are 39,700 and something different Protestant denominations that are theologically, describably different. That's absurd. That's just really basically absurd. And one of the problems with Sola Scriptura is it's going to lead to that because it assumes that God's truth can be reduced to man's perception or to humanity's perception. It can't be. 
or 500 years, the basis of authority has been sola scriptura, scriptura sola, and it's not anymore. And when you say that to folk, it's very threatening. It's very, very threatening. So number one, we need to know why it's threatening and to be appreciative of the fact that it is threatening. And then number two, we need to look at what were the limitations of it the minute it was formulated as a doctrine. And number three, where now is our authority? Uh, the minute you say that's not going to be the whole authority, now, then you open up the question, so where is our authority? So Phyllis will come in a couple of weeks and she'll talk about that. I want to say just a couple of things about that now. 39,700 denominations. You know, the interesting thing about those denominations, for those of you that come from them, you think all the people in the denomination agree? I mean, the, the question that begs, she call, I mean, she just calls a spade a spade. She says the idea that the Protestant Reformation has ended up in 39,700 divisions is absurd. I, I think we at least, she's probably stronger on that than I am, but I, I think we should at least say, you think that God sat back and looked and says, you know, that's exactly the way I was hoping it would go. 39,700 denominations looking at the other saying, you know what each denomination is saying? We are the arbiters of this authority called the text. You think anybody makes a denomination thinking that they agree with the other denominations? The reason they make another denomination is because they agree on some matter of interpretation. You think anybody says, you know, we're going to start a denomination and we're going to be the denomination that gets it a little bit wrong. Nobody starts a denomination thinking they're getting it wrong. All 39,700 of them have at least one thing in common. They think they've got it a little more right than the other. Now, that gives lots of people jobs, and there are plenty of district superintendents and general superintendents, but what for the layperson, what for the woman at the well who's driving down Franklin Road saying, which of these cats have got it right? There is this sense of insecurity in the world and this, to a certain extent, loss of credibility by the church that we in this Protestant Reformation have developed such a steam, a head of steam of protest that we advertise our disagreements loudly. I, I want to say this before Phyllis comes. I do not think the remedy for Protestantism's division is doctrinal clarity. I don't think in what I sense is a move of God. I experienced Haiti different this time than the last time I was there. And this morning somebody sent me an article from the Wall Street Journal saying that Haiti is on the upswing. I sense that's because God is moving in the earth. And whether that's Tony Campolo in the macro or Sean Penn or former President Bill Clinton working in Haiti on a macro level, or whether it's the reality that 30 years ago there were a few hundred orphanages in Haiti, many of them government-run. Today there are thousands in Haiti, 98% of them are run by Christians, people of faith. And in a hellhole called Wanamint, Haiti, this past week, 
we experienced a haven, an embassy of God's kingdom, Mark, in the middle of hell. And we saw hundreds of children whose minds were being reshaped from distortion, pain, and poverty to, I, to ideas that we call ideas of the kingdom. A kingdom that one day, this morning on the way to church, Nina, it's so funny, she just walked up here to ask me something. I, the preacher's kid got full dispensation here, but she walked up to ask me. What she walked up to ask me was, could she go back in class and show the kids some stuff that she brought home or that we brought home from Haiti? And I said, well, sure. And that's kind of what I'm doing this morning, sharing with you some stuff we brought home from Haiti. But what's happening in Haiti What's happening in Hope for Haiti, that little corner of the world that we were in there in Wanamint with those few hundred children whose stories we'll tell you more of next week. Next week, we're just going to show some videos and pictures and have that good old-fashioned mission service that a lot of us grew up with, and it'll be good and share some testimonies. But what's happening there is, is a piece of the answer to the question that Nina asked me this morning on the way to church. She just, right out of the blue, eight years old, it's the chief concern of so many of us. She said, Dad, when's the world going to end? And I said, have you not seen the chart that I made? <laughs> she said, when's the world going to end? We weren't even talking about it, Paul. She said, when's the world going to end? And I don't know whether she had seen something on the Discovery Channel about how long the sun's got left, or maybe, Lynn, it was because last night she stood there at the bedside of Ed Fulton and watched him breathing his last. Listened to her daddy quoting scripture over him about an old world and a world to come. She heard me say something about a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and she heard me say something about a new Ed. I don't know whether she was thinking about when the sun burns out or the 13.7 billion year ekparotic cycle of the universe reverses and the thing implodes. Probably wasn't thinking about that. But eight-year-olds think about the end of the world just like we do. And I told her what 30 years of study have led me to, and that is I didn't pick between the eschatological preference of the 39,700 denominations in Protestantism. I told her what in my gut I felt is true, that to some extent all of us are trying to point to I told her, I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't even know what that's going to look like. I don't know how that's going to happen. But whenever this world ends, I told her the thing that I deeply believe because I follow Jesus is I believe there will be a new one. And she said, will it be here? And I said, I don't even know what the definition of here or there will be. She said, well, is Mr. Ed here with us? And I said, I think he is. And I told her, I said, do you know what it means to be absent from the body? She says, that's what happened to him this morning at three. I said, do you know what it means? She said, yes, you leave the body. I said, who is you? She said, his spirit. And I said, I don't know exactly, Nina, but it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I told her, I said, when we get to church today, we're going to take communion with Ed because we call our dead the dead in Christ. You know where you are? You're the living in Christ. You know where they are? They're in Christ, same place we are. That's why this is a communion of saints. And in a little bit, we're going to take communion with Ed Fulton.
and the Apostle Paul. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know exactly what's going to take place. I don't know if it's going to be a slow, gradual transition or a cataclysmic interruption, but there's going to be a new ed and a new world. And she said, that's going to be the world where nobody dies. And I said, I don't even know what the definitions of death and living will be then, but it's going to be a world, as best we can tell, it's going to be a world. It's a world that looks a little bit more it's a world that will finally fully look like what Jesus described in Revelation 21 when he said, I looked and I beheld and there was a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, and she was descending like a bride adorned for her bridegroom. And I don't know if it'll be exactly like that or if that's metaphoric language. If it's metaphoric language, don't worry. Metaphor only means that the thing is greater than, not less than. It'll be more than the metaphor. But John said, Big pearls, lots of gold, walls of jasper. And then John said, but here's the real deal. There shall be no more. There shall be no more sorrow, no more pain. My 15-year-old got a dose of it this week, walking through those dirt path, sewage-lined villages trying to protect him, John, and while we were walking down through there, the woman comes out and pushes a baby because she knows we're from the orphanage, pushes a baby and bumps my 15-year-old against the shoulder. And he's nervous and, he's, and she follows us. The kingdom of God is a place where there will be no more wars, no more hunger, no more pain, no more suffering. I know it sounds like a pipe dream. I can't let go of it. Maybe that's what faith is. It's that inability to let go. Some call it pipe dream, wishful thinking. I call it a sense of conviction that it's true. I think it's the image of God in us that still vibrates with that idea that one day a world's going to be made right. And until that comes, whether that's 13 billion years, 2 million years when the sun runs out, or next week when the Pentecostal rapture happens, I, I don't know how it's going to happen. But it really doesn't matter because they're all pointing to the same reality. This world's going to end. And a world, the world that my little boy experienced this week with somebody trying to get him to take her baby is a world that needs to end. It's a world that needs to be repaired. Until that happens, I told Nina, what we're supposed to do is try in our little world to make our little world look like that world's going to look. And I believe that's happening in the earth. I believe that there's a reason Haiti's getting better. I, I believe there's a reason historians like Phyllis say something's a brew. I think that the Spirit is brooding upon the face of the deep complexity of this world, and times are changing. And I think the central question, how now shall we live? The subsequent question, where is our authority? And then the subsequent question, who gets to be the arbiter of that, of that Scripture? Which denomination are we going to pick, Southern Baptist or General Baptist, United Methodist or Southern Methodist, Assembly of God or Church of God? Who's going to be the arbiter? I don't think there is going to be a final arbiter on that. 
I think the final arbiter is going to be all of those 39,700 denominations experiencing a move of God that I think we've been experiencing the last 50 years that is driving us with trepidation, with discomfort, with some sense of fear and aggravation, and yet a sense of hopefulness. There is a move of God that's driving us back together, that's forcing us to ask ourselves the question, what really is essential Christianity? I I'm fine with authority being vested in Scripture. Ultimately, I think we would all agree, the ultimate authority. Where is authority? It's God. As Christians, we believe that God meted out that authority to his son, Jesus Christ, who we follow. We believe Jesus is our authority, right? We're following Jesus. He is our authority. There is a huge question. To what extent does Jesus vest his authority and teach his lessons about life through Scripture? Are there other ways that Jesus teaches us and uses his authority other than Scripture? The Pentecostal movement that I've been a part of pointed to this idea of a direct experience of God, dreams, visions, a sense of internal intuition. We weren't really wrestling with whether that was the authority or the papacy was the authority or the text was the authority. We all know Catholic or Protestant, liberal or conservative, Jesus is our authority or we wouldn't be following him. And if he has different mediums, whether it's nature, intuition, tradition, reason, experience, and scripture, if he has different modes, the fact of the matter is we don't believe that he talks out of both sides of his mouth. They will never contradict one another. So I think we can all come, liberal, conservative, Protestant, Catholic, together on that. But we have to admit, when it comes to Scripture itself, a lot of people with good hearts read that differently. And is the cleanup of this Protestant divisiveness that is so dividing us and hurting us, is the cleanup of that going to be when somebody is smart enough, powerful enough to come to the middle of these 39,700 39, and lead us back to a unity. I think that's gonna happen, and I wanna clue you in, I think I'm the guy. <laughs> Why not? The reason you laugh is because you see how ridiculous that is? Are we going to reverse this thing and go back to us and have to have a centralized holy man? After 1,600 years of that, we figured out even those dudes could get corrupt. You can do that in an evangelical pulpit or with a pontiff hat on your head. You can also be anointed whether you're an assembly of God preacher or a pope. And we've got an anointed pope right now who's reaching across lines, not just Protestant lines, but all lines. This guy is washing sinners' feet. This guy is doing some work. It's, a, it's proof to me that something's happening. But I'm, Barbara, I'm not looking for him to be my guy. And I don't think the answer is somebody clearing up all of these doctrinal problems that we have. I think the answer is what I again was reminded of in Haiti. I took my 15-year-old son about five years later than I should have. Haiti's not the end-all, be-all. There's incredible poverty right here. There's also incredible poverty in some of the biggest houses in this town. When Mother Teresa came here and she was asked by Walter Cronkite, what are your musings about our country? 
she said, I have never met such a poor people. We don't need to get so enamored with physical hunger and deprivation physically that we miss the fact that there are many kinds of hunger. And some of the hungriest, poorest people that I've ever met in my life live right here in the middle of this rich county. Some of the most devastated, broken, hungry people. And for a lot of years, we had prejudice against poor people. Be very careful in the church that we miss the move of the Spirit and have now a reverse prejudice against rich people. They have the opportunity to be blessed and happy and good and giving. Some of the most giving, caring people in this church are people who possess their money well. And some of the greediest people I know are poor people in this church who are struggling and are consumed with the want of money. It's not whether you have it or not. Don't be myopic and immature in your vision of what true poverty is. But I should have taken Stan Jr. five years ago to Haiti because he came face to face with a very visual poverty. When you walk into the little room where a young girl from Louisiana who just finished her master's degree in Oxford from University of Mississippi, our Oxford, she just finished her master's RT, and it's a great school there, but she just finished her RT, and she decided, listen to this, this little church girl, I mean, she's just years older than Nina there, some daddy's girl somewhere, she decided to go give two years of her life to our hospital there in Wanamint that people like you have built. And we walked into that room, she not only is given two years of her life, but the kids who go down there to do that missions work, Betty, they pay $200 a month for room and board. They pay money to be down there. And I looked at that girl glowing. Her dad's not a believer, so he totally doesn't get what she's doing, but she's sitting there, Kelly, encephaloid children. They don't have the care, and when babies have water on the brain, nothing happens, and the these children with heads that they can't hold up are in that room. And this, I walked in there, and she's got six or seven of those. One little girl with no muscles in her arms or leg, swinging her one-year-old arm at a ball. I walk in there, and this girl's got contemporary Hillsong praise music on, and, and she's clapping with those children. You saw it, John. Something else, wasn't it? And I look at that. And I leave there, and Karis takes us out to an old folks' home there in Wanamint. And it's not an old folks' home like our old folks' home. Incredible deprivation. And we walked in there, and the rooms stink, but they're as clean as they can get them, and there's beds lined up, and people who need medical attention, but they're just living out their days in this place. Little people. And I could hear Jesus saying, that's my grandmother. Remember when he stood in the crowd and said, that's my mother, that's my brother. It's our grandmother. See, that's the kingdom of God. When people, whether it's Sean Penn or you, when people start saying, that's my grandmother, that's what Christian is. Christian is when we stand in a crowd and say, that's my mother, that's my brother. That's Jesus talk. It's incredible to me how little doctrinal discussions Jesus actually led and even got drawn into. And you go in there, and there's this little gal. I mean, she's got to be 60 pounds, a wisp. They said that there were a couple there that was 100 years old or better, and she had to be, and she was in that chair, no restraint, just an old donated chair. 
And I watched one of the young missionary girls come to that little feeble body and begin painting her toenails and color. Oh, it wasn't just bright red. It was, it was the same color as the blood of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the essence of Jesus. That's what blood is. Saving, saving fingernail polish. And Karis, our girl that I've pastored for 18 years, mm, 20 years now, she's 33 years old. She looks like Grace Kelly if you hadn't seen her. She's been there for 12 years. She left CPA top of her class. Dad's one of the most eminent psychiatrists that Vanderbilt ever had, and she left all of that. And she's been there for 12 years. And she's a holy girl. She puts a beautiful dress on, just a flowing, elegant life, and she gets on the back of the motorcycle. She walks the streets of the town, and they line up and call her Mama Karis, Mama Karis. And I ask her about the old folks' home, and she says one of her great inspirations is there. She tells me then it's run by a group of nuns, and all of my Protestant stuff comes, oh, it's Catholic. It's Catholic. And she said, yes, one of my, she said, you say good things about me. She said, I'm nothing. She said, but there's a little lady who's lived here into her own old age, a nun who's been here for 35 years. And she said, I was here with her in her last days before she finally had to retire from the physical duress of it all. And she said, the last time I was here with her, crippled herself and old, this little nun. She said, as we were tending to some of the folks, one of the old people, just their bowels released and the bed and themselves and the floor, and it was just human waste. And she said, she didn't call to anyone. She took a couple of towels and she said, and I watched her in the middle of the floor cleaning. And then she said, I watched her take and diaper that old person care. No gloves, no chain mail. And she said, I even, she, the question was, why didn't you have somebody do, why are you still doing this? And she smiled and said, it's a means of grace. A means of grace, not to others, but a means of grace through Christ, through which Christ mediates his presence, Antonio, into her life. And all of my sense of needing to reconcile, I mean, do I agree with her doctrine of Mary? No, but she's doing really well with the doctrine of Mary because the last time I checked, Jesus pointed the little old ladies in nursing homes that fall into such disrepair that they can't contain their body and in their shame they sit, but someone graces them with hands that are not afraid to be dirty and calls it a means of grace to swab their beloved bum. Oh, she's got Mariology right because Jesus stood in that nursing home and said, that's my mother, and you know what her name was? Mary. She's just fine on her Mariology as far as I'm concerned. And I get on the plane I come from a Pentecostal background five generations deep and believe now looking back that the Pentecostal movement has been a major part of this brooding of God's spirit. It's a huge part. But as in any movement, we had our excesses and as any young person would do, I overreacted to those excesses and became so embarrassed by the excesses in the extreme that I moved as far away from that as I could. 
But little by little, I circled back around to those sensibilities, that idea of God's Spirit and the direct invitation of the Holy Spirit to know Jesus. And it, I'm remembering now, not the excesses, I'm remembering now in my own heart and experience the loveliness of all of that. There's a reason 500 million of our 2 billion Christians call themselves Pentecostal or Charismatic. It's a part of what God's doing. We looked up from the Scripture. They said you could, and when you did, you would look into the face of Jesus and we experience God. And so I get on a plane, and a few of us, Mark, are talking about God. And as we're talking about God on the plane home, this vibrant young man turns around and says, do you mind if I talk with you? I hear you're talking about God. And he joined our conversation, and within three minutes, my interdenominational church history radar totally had him figured out. He was a Pentecostal guy. You can figure him out. He was a Pentecostal guy, and he talked with swagger and conviction, and, and he said all the stuff that I used to say, and he was so certain, and he knew it all, and he was saying all the stuff, and all of my reaction to 39,700 and which one's right was going off, and I just wanted to dismiss him, Barbara, just dismiss him, just like you can dismiss her because of her Mariology, and the Spirit of Christ the spirit of Stan says, make him be quiet so you can help him. <laughs> and the spirit of Christ listens to him. The spirit of Christ says, listen to him. And I listened. And Brad, it wasn't about differences theologically, and it wasn't about any. You could have sliced him nine ways to Sunday, and it was sincere love for Jesus all the way to the core. And as I listened deeper past the 39,700 reasons we're divided, I listened to him, and my heart burned within me, and I felt the presence of God. And then I found out that he left Barbados, and he came here without a penny in his pocket because they're doing something at Lifeway, the Southern Baptist star that he heard about, and he thought it might help him take Jesus to his people more. And Chris, all of a sudden, it wasn't about me having a debate with him about this doctrine. The guy's pouring out his life, and he's sitting right over there. He came to church this morning. I'm glad you're here. All I want is for the flaming Pentecostals and the floor-scrubbing, rosary-pushing nuns. I just want us to acknowledge one another. I just want us to know one another. We're never going to get the 39,700 together ideologically, but I've been training my kid in an interdenominational church, and he knows more about church history and the Bible than most 15-year-olds because he's immersed in it with me. But the last few months have been hard on him, and I've been worried about him just like you worry about your kids. We've had a bad time. You don't think we ever have bad times? We've had a bad time. And he's confused because American Protestant Christianity will confuse 
And he even says to me, as he longs to find authority, he knows enough now that he knows that I can't even be that authority. And dad, why does everybody disagree so much? So I'm lucky enough to take him to Haiti and we're lying there in bed the other night and through the darkness, he said, after sweating his clothes through and wallowing in human misery and holding stinking, hungry, hurting children all day long, we lie there in bed and it is no doctrinal fix, but my son calls out through the darkness. This is the best day of my life. And he said, I want you to know that I would give anything to be able to go back the last few months and do some things differently. You know what that's called? That's called repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance isn't just going down to the altar telling God we're sorry so we can go to heaven and leave this hell. Repentance is when your mind changes. And in Haiti, my son found an altar and his mind is beginning to change. And I don't know if he'll be eternally secure in that, predestined for it, and how much his free will will play into it, and whether he needs to speak in tongues on the other side of it. All I know is that somewhere between a flaming young Pentecostal evangelist hurting children and a Catholic nun scrubbing poop off the floor, my son found God. And I think that the mind and the move of the Spirit today is not a diminishment of Scripture. It's not a playing down of doctrine. It is simply an acknowledgement. We're not going to fix the world through that, Steve Lindstrom. We're not going to fix the world through that. We're going to fix the world when we finally remember that Jesus said at judgment, I was hungry. I mean, at judgment, he's already told us at judgment, we're going to line our 39,700 Protestant superintendents up. We're going to line up our doctrines of Mariology, Trinity, and speaking in tongues. We're going to come with our issues in hand, and we're going to ask him, it's time for you to clean it up. And he's going to say, I've had something on my heart. I've wanted to tell you a long time. And we're going to smugly smile and say, get ready. He's going to tell you. He's going to say, I've been wanting to tell you this for eternity. I was hungry. And you fed me. I was thirsty. And all I had was sewage water. But you gave me clean water. I was naked. And you clothed me. I was sick. And you visited me. I was a prison imprisoned deeply and you visited me there. And we lean in with our predestination, free will, Catholic and Protestant sensibilities and arguments and say, yeah, 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 now get to the real stuff. And Jesus says, that's all I wanted to say. In my eschatology, that is not an end time event alone. Judgment begins at the house of God. And what my son experienced in Haiti this week 
was he heard that judgment. He heard that judgment while yet there is time for his life to be transformed. And it's that voice that is calling us to come back to what is essential Christianity. The interpretation is not going to come on the finery. The interpretation is going to come when we finally, little by little, remember that Jesus held up a big, thick book and said, I can give you the cliff notes if you want me to, or you can become masters of this book and miss the whole point. And the smart aleck said, what are your cliff notes? And he said, you can get the whole deal if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's about that. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, I know how you can become a part of the church. Go out, meet Leela, she'll give you a loaf of bread, we'll put you in a life group and get you a membership. But if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, find misery in this earth, whether it's a prescription drug-addicted Mercedes-driving Brentwood mom who's dying a thousand deaths and needs the touch of Jesus in her heart, or Steve, a homeless man under the bridge, or a deaf, naked child that wouldn't let go of our hand the whole week. Find somewhere where there's misery and dilute it and clean it up in the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God will be coming there. And Nina, honest to goodness, we may do that enough that finally that kingdom grows together and there is no more sorrow and suffering and Jesus comes and says, I can be the mayor of this city. I can be the king of this world and the kingdom will come. And Jeej and Pop may be right. He may come on a white horse and change the whole thing overnight. But either way, ain't gonna be any more starving children, no more kids picked on, and no more pediatric cancer units, and no more hurting people. Get in the middle of that, and you'll be in the middle of the kingdom of God, and everything else will take care of itself. And I bet, Mark, our 39,700 will start moving back toward one another and realizing there's not a whole lot of difference between that little gal cleaning up poop and that fiery Pentecostal evangelist. Slice him to the core. He's here. And Dave, I ain't going to be a fool and debate doctrine with him. He's here because he wants to take Jesus back to Barbados and use his math degree to teach children algebra and get them to lift a world that's hurting there. Put $100 in his pocket. You'll be doing the kingdom work today. He doesn't have much. <sighs> Bow your heads with me and let's take communion together. Brothers and sisters who are serving the Lord's Supper, take the elements and hold them for us a moment. Let us just pray a little bit here. Thank you, Lord, for happy tears, repentant tears, hopeful tears. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for the fact that the Wall Street Journal said Haiti's on the upswing. 
Thank you that Grace Point's on the upswing. Thank you that Barbados is on the upswing. Thank you that a little nursing care facility run by some Catholic nuns is on the upswing. And little old ladies' toes are getting painted even though their diabetes is not getting its medication. Thank you that the kingdom of God is coming in fits and starts here and there, now and then. Lord, may every person in this room May we find our place in this kingdom of grace. May we find our way to that place of hearing you say, I was hungry. That's my mama in that wheelchair. Stan Jr. said to me, who was that woman trying to give me her baby? I said, she was your sister, and he was your little brother. Oh, oh, oh. Thank you for the move of the Spirit that's reminding us of what we've forgotten. These are our brothers and sisters, the least of these. Move us, Lord, with that burning spirit that burned in my brother from Barbados and that drove my Catholic sister to her knees in the floor. And forgive us for judging one another's outward manifestation of that. Forgive us for forcing rosaries and hand-raising on one another. Forgive us for forcing the way we read the book of Acts on one another. Oh, Lord, bring us back to the center. Bring us back to the kingdom. Bring us back to love for one another and the dilution of misery until all misery is diluted and swords are beaten into plowshares and lions lie down with lambs. Oh, Lord, thank you for a move the spirit that's stirring not only in a pope's heart but Sean Penn's heart. How can we call that anything other than Jesus in both hearts? Thank you, God, for the kingdom that's coming. Thank you for the revival that's taking place. Thank you for the move of your spirit that's happening in liberal churches and Protestant churches and Catholic churches and traditional churches. Oh, Lord, may it so happen that our cities and towns and families will rise up and quit calling us Baptist and Catholic. And like the Antiochans, they will look at us and say they're Christians. They smell like Jesus. They look like Jesus. They're Jesus freaks. <laughs> oh, may we be Christians. And thank you for those who don't even call themselves that, that may be better ones than we. Thank you for the spirit of Jesus that's moving in this earth, healing this earth. May this church repent, change our minds, see it differently, and every one of us become a part somehow, someway. Thank you, Lord, for this good day. We receive the elements now. We hold them, Lord. We'll take together in just a moment by your grace. We receive them in hope, prayerful, repentant hope. We receive them. Thank you, Lord. Amen.